Welcome, everybody, to episode 44, Saratoga Stem Cell. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, my man? Uh, I guess I, I don't know what's going on. Do you have spring allergies? Do you get allergies? I, I feel I, like I'm... I have allergies. I don't know if it's spring or summer or what, man, because it all, all of a sudden just like smack me in the face yeah i'm kind of like pretty sad. St- stuffy right now i don't know if and I, well yeah i wasn't sure if i was sick or like what yeah you know? i feel the same way i'm not sure if it makes for great uh podcasting radio sound but i feel like no it doesn't i'm all stuffy. like Nick. yeah yeah but uh happy spring <laughs> happy, was, yeah happy, we've been looking forward for a while and it's here now but it's really summer yeah I mean, it's like 85 in the northeast um i think it's gonna cool down this week but it's been 85 and speaking of weather we are this episode um, Saratoga stem cell. We are, um, well, what's, oh, the, Sar- the next gen stem cell conference, which is in Saratoga, is over. It was last week. Joseph and I recording Saratoga, New York. Saratoga, New York. Yes, thank you. And uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to do full, we'll have four interviews from speakers, uh, or n- not all of them are speakers, but speakers and attendees of the next gen stem cell conference. And we had incredible weather. Once again, for again. the conference. Yep. Yeah, I know you sold your soul or something. I always that, sell that something to get two, that weather. Every day, how do you have two days in a row every year for three years being like the most gorgeous weather? I don't. And, and the place is so amazing. Like we were sitting outside on the Wednesday night after the conference the first night. And we have this really nice party and, and sitting out there overlooking the 18th hole. And it was like room temp. It was like 72 yeah. and just staring. It was like picture perfect. Couldn't have been any better. And uh, we had really great talks, right? I mean, a lot of really uh, great talks. Do you mean 25 degrees Celsius? That's what it is. (laughs) I only know that now from being in science. Yeah, exactly. That and I know know what MLs are from science. Yeah, me too. If someone's like, oh, look, it's about 50 MLs, I know exactly what it is. Yeah, I still Um, have no idea how to do kilometers, though. (laughs) I don't either. So, yeah, the Next Gen Stem Cell Conference was a success, I think, right? Yeah, no. Uh, These speakers, well, we'll get to it. I, I... I was really impressed with a couple of those talks, like a couple of the best talks I've ever seen. So yeah, it was uh, really really great. So yeah. we'll, we'll we'll let you all listen to uh, some of the uh, uh, speakers, and I believe um, Thermo Fisher, uh, who's one of the sponsors of the show, is setting something up where you can go online and you can actually watch. Uh, a good portion of the speakers uh, as they were being presented. So as soon as I know when that is, I will uh, let everybody know, and you guys can go check it out. So we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. The annual meeting is uh, coming soon. It's almost upon us here. We're getting about yeah. a, what is it, a little, less, 20, little more than a month. Yeah, then June 20s, I know Yeah, that June much. 20. Yeah. Uh, of course, Yosef and I and the podcast will be there, and everyone in the stem cell world will will be there. You can still register. Go to ISSCR.org and register now and get your butt out to Sweden for the meeting. Um, let's see what else we got. Go to everybody... Uh, really, thank you for continuing to listen to the show. Uh, you can go to stemcellpodcast.com. Everyone's been, not everyone I should say, but a lot of people have been signing up for the, for the newsletter, which is great. You can sign up at stemcellpodcast.com. Send us your comments, your feedbacks. Go on iTunes and please give us a rating. That, that'll help us. We are looking for volunteers, actually. If you're going to ISSCR 2015 and you want to help out the podcast, uh, um, you can go to the website, um, stemcellpodcast.com slash volunteer. Let me make sure that's right. And what we need is we're looking for people to help us kind of get, um, you know, get 
or corral uh, attendees to come over to give interviews and just help us out. I mean, we, we're, we're, Yosef and I are going to be sitting behind the counter uh, interviewing, so it's hard for us to be out there. So we're looking for volunteers. we we'll give you a T-shirt and some stuff. You can help us out. It's stemcellpodcast.com slash volunteer, and you can find out how you can help us out. So please, if you like the show and you want to help, uh, please go there and help us out. Um, what else, Yos? What do you got? No, I think that's it. You ready to get into the roundup? Let's do the roundup, which is sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Um, Thermo was at NextGen. They were also helping out the meeting. They do a real good job of helping out in all aspects of stem cell research with tools and, and uh, also helping us out to bring you this show and make it what it is. So thank you to Thermo Fisher Life Technologies. They had a cool talk on their uh, CRISPR uh, CRISPR technology, right, Yos, with yeah. some new, yeah. new stuff called Gene Art. I'm not sure if it's out yet, but I'm sure you can Google it or go check it out. Um, you can check them out. Go to our stem, website, stemcellpodcast.com, and click on the banner for more info. Yos, my man, let's round it up. Okay, uh, there was a JCI, or Journal of Clinical Investigation, uh, study detailing a link between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. They showed in mice that elevated glucose in the blood can rapidly increase levels of amyloid beta. And in young mice that didn't have amyloid plaques in their brains, doubling glucose levels in the blood increased amyloid beta levels in the brain by 20%, and in older mice by 40%. They found that spikes in blood glucose increase the activity of neurons through uh, these KATP channels, which I'm assuming is a calcium, I mean a, a potassium channel, uh, that which promoted the production of amyloid beta. So they used a drug called diazo oxide to elevate glucose levels in the brain, and they found it forced these capped K- KATP channels to stay open, and uh, these cat uh, channels are the way by which uh, the the pancreas secretes insulin in response to high blood sugar levels. So there's this crazy link between uh, you know blood glucose and and the brain and amyloid beta. Yeah, so uh, I think that's been known just in general population studies. That's why they were looking at it that uh, people who have diabetes are at more risk of developing Alzheimer's. Uh, there was a development study. Oh, this one's cool, actually. I know the first author, Charlie Arbor. Uh, they they uh, basically, in, from Meng Li's lab, they uh, increased the uh, yield of GABAergic medium spiny, medium-sized spiny neurons from human ESCs, uh, from human embryonic stem cells, and induced pluripotent stem cells by using Activin, which you know all about. Your, your company sells the Activin beads uh, to induce the lateral ganglionic eminence in the presence of sonic. So Activin will induce LGE, uh, in the presence of Sonic. So they were able to get these CTIP2, GSX2, FOXP2 positive progenitors when they induced with Activin, and they became DARP32 neurons, which were able to transplant into uh, their model of Huntington's disease. I should mention that's why this is important. It's for uh, Huntington's disease. So um, you find that over in development. 
pretty good. Yeah, that's good cool. I think you were telling me about that at the meeting. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Check that out. Uh, there was a science translational medicine uh, where this was really cool. They 3D printed uh, trachea for uh, these three babies that had a severe tracheobronchomalacia condition. It's a medical condition that causes the windpipe to periodically collapse and prevent prevents normal breathing and currently there's no cure so these babies would have died otherwise uh and these these 3d printed trachea splints if you will they dissolve uh over time and while the babies essentially develop their own functioning tracheas with this stent in so i thought that was cool that a the babies would have died otherwise and that they 3d printed these dissolving tracheas that's cool man yeah yeah. What a uh, crazy disease, collapsing trachea. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a issue. Um, science, there was a science article where they found the genetic uh, mutations underlining Werner or Werner syndrome, uh, which is pretty much premature aging. Uh, it results in deterioration and disorganization of heterochromatin. Uh, they made Werner gene mutant, or WRN is the gene, uh, mutant stem cells, and they saw that the normal protein interacts directly with structures known to stabilize heterochromatin. So there's your link between premature aging. Um, there was an e-biomedicine study showing that aspirin might exert its chemoprotective activity against colorectal cancer by normalizing the expression of uh, epidermal growth factor, EGFR, the receptor. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in, is it epidermal? No, it's... Uh, yeah. What is it? Which one you said? EGFR. In, yeah, the uh, yeah epidermal growth factor yeah. receptor in uh, gastrointestinal pan- precancerous lesions. They showed a functional association between EGFR and COX two, which is what aspirin works on, COX two inhibitor during the development of colorectal cancer. So uh, there's a little cool little link there. Um, nature, uh, there was a nature study where they sh- they found a new dinosaur. I, you know, I always love this stuff where I they found in China. Uh, it was 160 million years old. It's called Yi Chi. Is the name of this <laughs> dinosaur? Yeah, or QI. I guess that's Chi. Uh, this it was the size of a pigeon. It had bat white like wings, and it's ca- causing a stir in the dino world because it's the only one of its kind. Like size of a pigeon with bat wings so um you can find that in nature bat wing uh, uh you, when jurassic park came out were you a, and were you a fan do you remember going did you go to the theater to see it i just remember that like mosquito stuck in the amber and thinking yeah, yeah. like how cool is that that there's so blood cool. in there from a dinosaur and we can resurrect it Th- that was like ahead of its time i feel like because that was a while ago and they were talking about like isolating dna and filling in the gaps with frog and creating yeah. like a new species like now that i know what i know about genetic you know it was pretty pretty ahead of its time yeah now george church is like bringing back the wo- woolly mammoth using the same sort of concepts yeah, but really. uh yeah Sorry, anyway go ahead uh, the, there was a Journal of American Chemical Society sh- uh, where they – this one's really cool. They changed the blood type by using uh, directed evolution to pr- produce an enzyme that could snip sugars and antigens found in type A and type B blood and make it more like type O, you know, the universal donor. So uh, y- uh, you could essentially pr- in the future convert – 
like a type A or a type B or type AB person to the universal uh, donor oh, really? blood type. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this the, it was very efficient at subtypes of the type A blood antigen. Um, and in five generations, they were able to make this like evolving en- enzyme that was 170 times more efficient at doing this snipping of the antigens that makes somebody say type A or type B blood and uh, make them more like type O. So I thought that was cool, just the idea of being able to convert somebody to a type O. Um, that is really cool. Yeah, there was a Nature Neuro uh, article, Nature Neuroscience, where they switched off hunger. So they, uh, it's known that these AGRP neurons in the hypothalamus sense when we are low in calories, but not much is known how they inhibit satiety. In, uh, satiety? How do you say that? Satiety? <laughs> Sati- I think it, I think that's right. Sati- yeah, I don't know because I know the word like satiated. Yeah, you me know? too. Yeah, so. yeah. So uh, the protein AGRP binds uh, to MC4R receptor. Uh, so they looked for neurons expressing high levels of this MC4R in the hypothalamus and chemically turned them off. And uh, and found that mice kept eating when full, and they and when they switched on the MC4R receptor, they refused to eat. So they then looked at the neurons that the MC4R uh, neurons communicate with in a region called the lateral parabrachial nucleus, and they used optogenetics to modulate this interaction. Uh, and switching on the circuit uh, turned off hunger. So it uh, could be an important target in the future for, you know, obesity and trying to, you know, trim the fat. And uh, real quick, couple more. Uh, Nature Neuro study finding uh, the body's uh, molecular reset button for the, you know, for the body's internal clock. It resets when light phosphorylates EIF4E. Uh, so this is sort of like the original optogenetics, right? Like the light actually turns, turns uh, yeah, yeah, causes gene uh, uh, activity and uh, triggers synthesis of proteins called period proteins. And when these proteins are produced in abundance, the clock resets and precise timekeeping is facilitated. So to further probe this process, the researchers engineer mice to produce a mutated EIF. 4E that could not be phosphorylated, phosphorylated, and they found that compared to control mice, the mutants responded much less efficiently to resetting the effect uh, of light. So by exposing the mice to different light uh, darts, dark cycles they uh, than they were used to, they found that unlike the controls, the mutants were unable to synchronize their body clocks. So there's your body clock uh, reset That's switch. The body clock, those clocks are so fascinating to me, man. And uh, finally, there's a journal of experimental psychology showing that people who chewed gum after hearing a catchy song thought less about the song than in the control condition. Dude, so, you're telling me this for a reason. I yeah, yeah, because Chris is the original earworm. Like, if a song gets in his <laughs> head, it will get in your head because it spreads. Uh, also, uh, reduces the amount of the song that they heard in their head by one-third. So, the this is 
being dubbed the earworm cure. So if you have like, you know, a song you can't get out of your head, uh, start chewing some gum. And I thought it was funny that the songs that they used for this experiment were Play Hard by David Guetta and Payphone by Maroon 5 as like their catchy songs. So you're supposed to, if you chew gum while listening to it, you're less likely to like keep it yes. in your head? Yes. So the idea is that chewing gum co-ops some of the brain regions involved in earworms. So, uh, yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. So that's it for me. What do you got um, on your end? And that's funny. Um, so, all right. First thing we never got to, because I think the last episode um, was just after or, or just before the first paper that came out regarding the germline uh, editing, you know, germline gene oh, modification. Yeah, 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 we, yeah, talked, yeah. we talked about the... The, the technology and all these people were coming out saying that we shouldn't be uh, editing the germline. So basically, real quick again, it's uh, CRISPR and these technology go in and change DNA, and change genomic sequence. We can change the, gen- the genome, and the technology is such now that we can go into, let's say, sperm and correct mutations and or egg and something like that. And then what would happen is you could then alter you would alter the offspring. And so, obviously, you know, there's benefits so that you can say that there should there would be benefits for that, you know, with disease. But then you get into the debate of, like, superhumans, you know, changing genes involved with hair or athleticism and things like this. So um, the question was, when is, it, when is it going to be done? When would it be done in human embryos? And a lot of people are saying we should never do that or not yet. Sure enough, uh, in China... Uh, a study came out. There was researchers led by Junju Huang of Yat-sen University in Guangzhou. He pu- uh, they published the, fir- the world's first scientific paper on the altering d- of the uh, DNA of human embryos. And this research is controversial. Uh, even though it was conducted on damaged embryos that could have never developed into a human, I think many scientists are contending that the newly developed genetic engineering methods need to be studied further in animals before running the risks of kind of unpredictable human mutations and kind of, they're saying, scarier developments in human human evolution. You know what's weird, though, Joseph? Like, how could such, like, a monumental paper go unnoticed? Because it kind of went unnoticed for a while, and, it's because, and it was published on April 11th, right, in this, in this journal, online journal called Protein and Cell. Yeah, I saw that. It got rejected from Science and Nature, I believe. On yeah, it says it got re- rejected from Science and Nature partly on the grounds that the new research is unethical. Yeah. Uh, and so they just, which I don't know if that's unprecedented for something to get, uh, you know, rejected because of its, uh, you know, ethical terms. Because eth- ethics and ethical, isn't that, it's not hard fact, right? I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know, like... Ethics is what someone deems to be ethical. So yeah, um, the ethics back in like the '40s. I think Mark put me on these uh, LSD experiments in elephants, where they're just like completely unethical today. But ethics keep changing. So yeah, they do. And so this team, so they they didn't experiment with they didn't experiment with viable human embryos. They used some of the abnormal, non-viable embryos that are inevitably created as part of like IVF therapies. Such as when, like, two sperm get into their insert their DNA into a single egg, they would never use that egg. So they were using these kind of uh, materials, starting materials. They injected 86 embryos with engineered CRISPR sequences that targeted genes responsible for the blood disorder beta thalassemia. They said 71 of the embryos survived the 48-hour period needed for CRISPR to work. 54 of the embryos could be genetically tested, and only 28 had the defective sequence removed. 
and even a tinier fraction of those ended up with the pasted in healthy genetic sequence. So there's a very low efficiency. Although this is more worry, worrisome to me, in some cases, the CRISPR technique unintentionally caused mutations in other parts of the genome. Off-target effects. Yeah, so remember we talked to Fred Alt about that. So, you know, they did it here, but there's a lot of caution, and there's a lot of people out there that are just got the heebs from this, you know, like, ooh, we should kind of chill out on this. So you knew it was coming, and it's out, and I heard there's a buzz that there are some other papers uh, coming out. So you can read about that protein and cell and you can just Google it. It's everywhere. This is, uh, let's see, there was a new found type of stem cell that could be easier to grow in the lab than embryonic stem cells. So this was a newly discovered stem cell. Uh, this was Juan Carlos Espuisa Belmonte out of the Salk. And his colleagues stumbled across a previously unknown variety of pluripotent cell which can give rise to any type of tissue while attempting, uh, and they found it, I guess, while attempting to graft human pluripotent stem cells into mouse embryos. Scientists, uh, I think, knew about two other types of pluripotent stem cells, but growing them in large numbers and, and differentiating them or turning them into the different cell types of the body has been difficult. So here they report a type of pluripotent cell that is easier to grow in vitro uh, and grafts into embryo when injected into the right spot. They call them region-selective pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and uh, I'm reading here is a little comment from Paul Tizar talking about it. Um, and so, again, this is published in Nature, um, and I'll let you guys go and check it out. Let us know what you think about this new type of stem cell. Is, I didn't is read the this full a, article. Is this a mouse or a human? No, it's a human. Oh, wow. All right, because I know the, the F-class stem cells are only a mouse right now, right? There's no... There's no fuzzy human. Yeah, I'm human. pretty sure this is human, Yosef. I'm just scrolling through a pre yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's human. Um, yeah. And uh, again, I didn't read the full paper, but um, it got a lot of press. It's in nature, so go check it out. Let All us know what you think. Um, this I was reading, Medical First Baby Born with a Cyst from Stem Cells. The doctors in Canada delivered what is believed to be the first baby in the world born using a breakthrough in IVF, or in vitro fertilization treatment, that employs stem cells. It says it's, this, this, uh, this is a dramatic, the technique is a dramatic improvement in IVF success rates. Is expected to spawn, I hate when they say oh, you man. spawn in, yeah. as a verb here, to spawn a wave of babies born this summer. Uh, wow. This baby was born through a new method that relies on the discovery that pristine stem cells of healthy, yet-to-be-developed eggs that can help make a woman's older eggs as viable as those as younger women. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. Uh, unlike other kinds of stem cells, which have the ability to develop into any kind of cell in the body, these can only form eggs. Um, so this is a new technique that should uh, be useful in the whole, in the big, big field of IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, can broccoli fight cancer? Everyone tells you to eat your cruciferous vegetables. This was a, um, a paper that came out saying that compounds found in broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cruciferous... I really don't even know what cruciferous is, <laughs> but... It's cruciferous vegetables may help prevent. It sounds like a Latin version of your name. It does, cruciferous, <laughs> Christopher. May have helped prevent the recurrence and spread of some cancers. So we talked about cancer stem cells a lot. We had a, we had someone in Next Gen talk about cancer stem cells because you know the chemo hits the cancer and a lot of the cells die, but the stem cells live on. And the re, so the researchers found tested a compound called PEITC that's produced when these vegetables are chewed to see what the effect they have on cancer stem cells. And scientists treated human cervical cancer stem cells in a Petri dish with PITC and found that almost 75% of the cells died within 24 hours. Hmm. Um, And so I guess as you chew these vegetables, you release this PITC, 
Mm-hmm. So um, eat your vegetables, Yos. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Ulcer-causing bacteria manipulate stomach stem cells to their own ends. So Heliocobacter pylori, which is uh, the bacteria that causes ulcers, uh, been, I guess, this, um, so it's saying H. pylori has been giving us ulcers since prehistoric time. Um, and they're saying that this long-term relationship is so tight that researchers have been able to track human migration by looking at the strains of pylori. Um, this lab discovered that tiny colonies of H. pylori uh, hidden away at the bottom of the glands that line the stomach are right next to these critical, are these, these stem cell crypts. And that these stem cells are what replenish the epithelia that line the stomach. Um, and he's saying that, you know, this shed, this finding sheds light on how H. pylori could influence cells to turn cancerous. So, like, you know, if you have this H. pylori interacting with stem cells and the stem cells are what's turning over your lining, um, you know, if, if you get some sort of, if it leads to some sort of mutation in the stem cell, you can turn it into some sort of, uh, you know, cancer or something like that. So it's an interesting link between bacteria and stem cells in the, um, in the stomach there in the gut. Uh, it's kind of an interesting idea. Um, you can check that out. Again, all the links we put up on the website. Uh, so you'll be able to find them easily there. Let me see if I can move quickly here. Um, so a new way to watch what stem cells transplant into the brain do once they get there. In a recent uh, release saying that um, uh, this is kind of a, a new study in neuroimage. Neuroscientist and bioengineer and her colleagues came up with a way to peer deep into the living brain and view the results of a stem cell transplant procedure. They combined an established brain imaging technique with a new, with a new one called optogene- optogenetics. Uh, so they have optogenetics to modify the cells. They become photosensitive, and it generates an electric current in response to laser light. And then this allows the team to, um, you know, track stem cells once they get transplanted. Optogenetics is really everywhere now, huh, Yost? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's really becoming such a tool uh, to track cells, follow them, watch their activity in this study. They just use it as another way to, um, um, in fact, to do that. Uh, let's see here. Um, this is cool. I thought this is cool. Neuronal hyperactivity accelerates depletion of neural stem cells and impairs hippocampal neurogenesis. So, you know, you have things like epilepsy, which you have this overactivity of neural, you know, over neural activity, hyperactivity, where the neurons are just firing, firing, firing. Um, what they're seeing here is that um, um, when you have uh, like kind of this hyperactivity, and they induce it by injecting high levels of canic acid. Mm. Um, it's, um, it actually results in this depletion of neural stem cells um, and then impaired neurogenesis. So the, there's an effect of hyperactivity in the resident stem cells and the turnover of neurons. So they're showing that um, you know, in some sort of model. Cytotoxicity. Yeah, and it actually has a, a pretty dramatic uh, effect on on um, on the uh, stem resident stem cells there, uh, and let me see here uh, real quick new clues into how stem cells get their identity, and uh, saying scientists have now identified a, this a combination which drives cells along the path that allow them to become organs such as liver or pancreas, um, and uh, this is Henrik Seb from the Dan the Dan Stem Center at the University of Copenhagen, explain how the acquisition of a new cell identity is achieved. Um, and it's talking about the different compounds they added um, to get to this um, this new fate, which is basically like a new uh, a new recipe. Uh, so you can check that out. Again, the link will be all up. 
And I think we're about time, so we will stop so you guys can enjoy. I think we have four interviews. Is that right, Yos? Yeah, let's get to it. Those those are good. Let's get to it. All right. All right. Okay, Chris, uh, here we are at Saratoga, beautiful Saratoga, live from the floor of the conference. Yeah, the, and ne- the next gen conference, day two. Yes, day two. Uh, what a night we had last what night. What a night. <laughs> you can you can hear it in my voice. We had a we had a good night. So we have we have our first guest of the morning, um, Dr. Greg Smith from Northwestern University. I'm looking at his tag that says Emory, but he's from <laughs> Northwestern University. Um, welcome to the podcast. How Thank you doing you. this morning? Very good. Good, good. I didn't, I didn't stay out as late as some. No, you did not. So so Greg was. Um, really kind enough to he he was slotted a 20 minute talk and then was told pretty much when you got here or very soon before that we wanted him to do 45 minutes and he was very uh accommodating and did an awesome job uh talking about his work why don't you uh i guess in a, a minute or two give us a little snippet into your work what you're what you're what you're studying yeah so unlike most of the people at this conference i'm a virologist and, uh, exactly. <laughs> I did ask the question at the beginning of how many virologists in the audience. I got one hand up, which is one more than I expected. So uh, I'm studying uh, herpes virus, which is a neuroinvasive pathogen in humans. And uh, one of the interesting hallmarks of this is that it's fairly benign. You know, some people get cold sores. A lot of people don't get anything. But uh, in a few unfortunate people, it spreads not – it doesn't retain itself just in the peripheral nervous system, which, which is where it usually lives, but gets into the brain. And really nobody understands why that happens. And uh, Jean-Laurent Casanova, who's not here, unfortunately, uh, made some really important discoveries that there's genetic contributions from the host. And uh, one of the things that can happen is uh, patients that lack uh, a gene for a protein called toll-like receptor 3 or TLR3 are more predisposed for the virus to get into the brain. And so uh, with that knowledge and now with the development of iPS technology, we can take skin cells from these patients, turn them into neurons, and study the process and culture. And it's the first time we've ever been able to look at this ability of the virus to get into the brain or be restricted from getting into the brain by looking at the CNS cell cultures. And it's uh, amazing because when you culture the CNS neurons from a healthy person uh, through the iPS lineage, you end up with cells that the virus can't infect, just like in a normal human, which is remarkable. Now, Greg's being a little modest, but uh, I think he gave one of the better talks I've ever seen, uh, complete with... Uh, herpes virus labeled with RFP going up and down neurons traveling yeah, it was really traveling cool. up and down really stuff cool. I've never seen before and uh, just a nice visualization of how the virus goes f- from you know your lip all the way up was it the trigeminal trigeminal is typical yeah yeah and uh, hangs out in the base of the brain and waits until you get a little bit stressed out and then makes its journey on the makes way back. Move, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for the, for the audience I don't think a lot of people appreciate that these viruses just hang out you know like i think pe- most people probably in the audience would say you know with cold sores they go away they're gone they realize it's still latent but what that actually means i don't think people understand I don't that think it, a lot of people know the, the street that's in your nervous system yeah it just lives in your nervous system so you can talk about that a little bit how these things can just kind of reactivate they can just hang out in a neuron and they, live they and hang live out live. your whole life once you're infected you have it for the rest of your life and there's no there's no cure for it yeah yeah, it's the gift that keeps on. It is the gift that keeps on. One of the sayings. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so, and so, I mean, do should people out there be scared that they have cold sores and that one day it's going to get to their brain and cause a massive problem? Actually, or? if you've had a cold sore, it's probably a good sign that you're not going to have a more severe infection later in life. Okay. So it's really the people who haven't had it that don't know yet, and they don't. They won't even know they had it. Herpes virus, in the, right? If they can't see you know, it, we, we, we said, you know, I talked about at the beginning that looking at the age of this room, most of the people in this audience 
probably ha- should have it. I'm just statistically speaking, it's probably about sixty per- sixty to seventy percent of the people here Jeez. have it. And most the people that have a cold sore ever in their life is probably much lower. It's probably somewhere around five percent of the room. Really? Yeah. Why is that? I don't. I don't understand that. Um, why somebody can? And sometimes people will go their whole adult life, and sometimes in like their sixties or seventies, it'll show up, and they're obviously not active. It's just been dormant. It's been and, dormant. Yeah. Because uh, when it's reactivating, it's often below clinical manifestation. So right now, one of us might have some herpes virus on our lip, uh-huh. and we don't even know it. Really? Yeah. And so the Ooh. cold sore is the abnormality. Because what that really reflects is a very hyper immune response to the re- to the really? reactivated event, and so oh. it's your immune system coming in and making that crusty lesion. Yeah, that's you know the good healthy response, but it's overblown. I see. Normally, when it's going on, it's below that lo- that level, so you don't even see that it's happening. Oh, so it's not ooh. the strain. I'm always like, ooh, it's there like could be a- some strain effects, but okay. it's probably more the host genetic background. Well, I see. Why the lip? Why there? Uh, is there any reason for that? Or well, so I, I guess I don't know how far you want to take this conversation, but you, <laughs> you have to think about type 1 versus type 2, yes, right. which are okay. really the same virus. They're just different stereotypes, even though they've been given different names. And uh, and so it's not necessarily the lip, but it has to be somewhere where it's able to gain access for for, for replication. So musal and mucosal epithelia is typical. Okay. And the lip just happens to be favorable for type 1. Okay. I see. Yeah. I see. And uh, they, you know, they never tell you that when you go away to college. Uh, don't share, and you know, a drink or something with somebody who has. Yeah. You know, you hear cold sore, you think, oh, it's something maybe inside the lip or something. But then, you, well, they you shed, get right? Yeah, I mean, shed. But how how long do they stay alive? If you will, by these viruses, they just you know sit on a coke can and they're alive for a while, or right? Not very long, because so they, these viruses have a membrane envelope surrounding them. And anytime you have that lipid there, that makes them a little bit easier for to fall apart. And so they're, they're not designed really to hang out on a table for a long time. They really want intimate contact. So you need to kiss somebody pretty much. All right. I see. And, and so I guess lastly, so you're able to study how these viruses can infect or get in and move around and neurons and things. Then after that, what's next? How do you prevent it? How do you stop it? How do you... Uh, is it more of a diagnostic? So, like, well, you know, there's a the lot of really interesting things that you can do with this knowledge. And one of the things that we have just recently been pushing very hard is the fact that we, now that we understand in the past year, some of the effector mechanisms the virus uses to travel down the nerve fiber, which a lot of viruses can't even do. So, there's something novel about these viruses that can do that. We've been able to just tinker it with it gently so that we make it lose that specific ability to travel long distance in an axon. And now we have viruses that, in an animal model, will replicate out at the at the mouth. At the mouth or, you know, wherever, but it doesn't get into the nervous system anymore. It's no longer neuroinvasive. And so now your immune system can take it down very effectively and it can't hide. I see. Yeah, so, and so once you have that, now you can develop a nice immune response. That gives you the ability to vaccinate an animal. So, can, can, Actually, I just before we end this, I yeah. was just wondering about some of the, because this seems like ripe for like a billion dollar pill. So the treatments, like the, uh, what is it? Not, is it Valtrex or... Yeah, acyclovir is the base compound that's okay. in most of this, yeah. Okay, and what, what does that do? It seems like it's not a cure-all, but maybe it shortens the... It's a treatment. So it kills the cells that are produ- actively producing the virus. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So, But the problem is a lot of the vi- not all cells that harbor the viral genome reactivate at the same time. And so you'll never kill all the cells uh, that harbor, harbor all the I viruses. See. So you can't cure yourself with it. But you can definitely treat it because if you're killing those cells, there's going to be less virus produced during an outbreak. Virus load goes down. And way down, way down. Yep. Yep. And it's really good, too, when it gets to the brain. It's the only treatment they really have is you just go on high-dose acyclovir to try to slow down the infection. But that person who will 
potentially recover is going to still have the virus now latently in their brain rather than in their peripheral nerves. Right. And the rea- next reactivation event will be a second round encephalitis. Uh-huh. So the prognosis is still terrible, but at least there is that treatment. Mm. Great. Well, well, he's Greg Smith. Go check him out. Go read up. It's very cool. Yeah, he's got some exciting stuff in the, yeah. in the works. Yeah. So. Thank guys. you very much. Pleasure being here. All right. All right. Okay, we're back. Uh, we got actually. We should have you probably introduce Christy. Here, I was going to say we should have guest. you introduce. Uh, I'll yeah. introduce Christy Allen, graduate student at the Neural Stem Cell Institute. Welcome, Christy, to the podcast. Thank you for we're, having me. No problem. How is your next gen experience going so far? It's good. The conference is really nice. It's, um, all the speakers are great. Food's great. Yes, the food is good. Speakers are all right, too. No, <laughs> no we just <laughs> ate. <laughs> yeah, we're in the middle of lunch break. So um, you want to tell us a little bit about your stem cell story? You want to tell us a little bit about what you do in the lab? Um, which project? Well, <laughs> you know, we could pick, pick one. Whatever you want to tell us about. Give um, us a little vignette so as to your world. Well, I will admit, during the last talk, I was analyzing some data I'm and sure. I'm sure your uh, mentor would be very proud of that. <laughs> well, I, I think I was analyzing the data a little bit while you were giving your spiel too, so I apologize for that. No, that's but okay. I uh, I use the beads, so I kind of know how it works. The beads. The beads have freed up my weekends a little bit. You hear so that, everybody? Yeah. Very grateful for go that. Go get your weekends back. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Go ahead. Get a certain amount of money every time you do that. No, that if we did, we would be saying it a lot more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, anyways, so I was uh, analyzing data that. Um, uh, we look at the development, early neural development um, in human stem cells, and uh, we're looking at the effects of bisphenol A or BPA uh, on these developing cells. BPA, and yes. um, we're finding yep. out that BPA does, in fact, alter early neural development. I'm looking at you drinking out of glass, so that's good. I Yeah, that's I've a actually good become step. a little bit obsessed with that. And, to yeah. all of the people in the lab listening to this, my glass water bottle disappeared. Yeah, she so. she had a glass water bottle stolen. <laughs> yeah, we should rant about that. Yeah, yeah, stealing people's yeah, water bottles yeah. in the lab. Yeah, that's pretty bad. So, uh, how does BPA affect brain <clears throat> development? Are you looking in vivo or in vitro? Well, right now we're just doing um, in a dish modeling. Um, you know, we're le- looking at very early development from about day zero. Um, using Christopher Fasano's published Lorenz Lab paper to look at early neural development, prefrontal cortical cells to be specific. Um, but we're focusing mostly on from day zero to the effects out to day 26. So it's um, using different dosages. We're seeing differences in effects of minor um, exposure to to higher concentrations. I have to admit, when I get like a a bus receipt or any sort of receipt to throw it away yeah i i don't I, yeah is do you know if it's on both sides of the paper because it's, it's that waxy plastic, that yeah. plastic uh yeah. material that you yeah re- atm receipts gas station receipts uh, it's everywhere just it's, say no just say no yeah i don't need a receipt unfortunately you can't save the environment anyway yeah you don't need the receipt yeah just get an email. Well, you do on the M15 select bus, so they'll give you a $100 ticket if you don't have that receipt on you. So I, I fold it up, 
and I'm thinking maybe the side that they print stuff on is the BPA side, so I fold it that way <laughs> so that in my pocket it's not giving me BPA. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so don't, I don't after know. handling your receipts, don't stick your fingers in your mouth. I think that's the moral mm. of the story. I, I think it's the boy. I think I'm contaminated. Yeah. Now. Well, I think the 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 take home is that everybody is contaminated. I think it was like what over ninety percent. There are trace levels in all, yeah. pretty much everybody. Yeah, but and I mean, like BPA is in cans? What's yeah, BPA lining of cans. Is in, um, yeah. Teeth, you know, when you get a filling, yeah, it's at high, high levels actually. Yeah. And so what? Dental. What, I mean, right, Christy? I mean, I, I was about to say what we're finding. We should say that Christy's in my lab, so we should mention that. So it's going to get like funny if I say what we're finding. But I mean, Christy can tell you. Look, we're looking early. Okay. This is like Very early, early. In before development. you even know. Yeah, like before you even you're know pregnant. you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when, like, they're doing the exposures and seeing some interesting changes. And right now, um, you know, we're excited to, you know, hopefully try to use other chemicals and things like this. But it's do you a think cool uh, the, the of rise BPA. of BPA use has anything to do with the rise of autism? I'm just throwing that out there. I, I mean, have we no think so. Data to support that. Or I like any. to think I do. You know, I don't know if autism directly, but definitely. Neurodevelopmental disorders. Changes right? in neural development for sure. sure. We're looking at markers associated with the mTOR pathway, which okay. are associated with autism okay. deficits and you know changes in the mTOR pathway. So we're certainly looking in that avenue. Okay. I mean, I think it's ex- I think it's um, pretty well taken now that the environment is a major player in autism with like combination of your genetics. Mm-hmm. Right. So genetically alone, you might not get autism or on the spectrum, but if you get the right combo of environment it could push you over so we're trying to look to see how the environment tips it over so tell everybody um why they should come to the next gen conference next year the weather <laughs> the weather and the food always amazing the, well besides yeah besides the good food and the awesome people that are here I think, well, the people that are here, that's why you should come. I mean, it's a small, intimate conference. Young people that are making a name for themselves, you know, different um, avenues of interests, all dealing with stem cell and neuroscience. So it's a really dynamic uh, group of people that's really, you know, and they're fun to talk to, too. You know, it's not yeah. it's not hard to, it's um, I mean, not every conference you go to, you can just step outside and talk to the person to your left or your right. This is true. So oh. it's it's nice in that way. That is very true, and and we, you see familiar faces every yeah. year you go. You, you know the same people are coming a lot of back. Breath so too, it's like uh, we saw myasthenia gravis paper from uh, you know presentation. Yeah, we see a lot of different uh, things. Schizophrenia, diabetes, schizophrenia, diabetes. Schizophrenia uh, talk was really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. That and one was Kristen's the CRISPR great. talk uh, from oh yes, life oh, yeah, technology. That's right. So. We did have like a wide range, and then we had uh, Samantha who did that cell net. We should have her come over. We'll have Sam uh, come over. Let's have her over next. I, I think we tried to do that this year, really expand everybody, the, 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 the base of knowledge. We also had graduate students present this year, which I thought was nice. We had two students present. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, so we tried to get uh, all walks. We're going to have core facility session next, so mm-hmm. we'll hear from core directors. So that'll be fun. And it's from top top universities, too. So it's yeah. you know, these people are making huge impacts on... Yeah, nature papers, cell papers. Well, I I just saw some images that uh, blew my socks off. So hopefully we could get Evangelos over here at some point. You as like well. those, right? Yeah. Those crazy neuron yeah, firings. So we, those we, were cool. We, we right? got to talk about. You know, that, that was that was one thing that I really liked that you were bringing in a little bit more electrophys. I feel like, you know, that's kind of a different world of neuroscience, not always associated mm. so heavily yeah. with 
the stem cell world. Yeah. So it's nice to see that. And we want to do that. I know we always talk about in the lab, we want to look at function, yeah, physiological function. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is a cool calcium way. Calcium imaging. To, calcium imaging. This is a cool way to do it because you're not really using traditional electrophysiological technique. No rig necessary. There's no like yeah. patch clamp rig, yeah. but they're using rhodopsin, which is very cool. So. Although we did hear from some patch. patch we did. Clamp There's rig. still some old school. Who is that? I sh- I have to turn that off. Sorry what about that. What was that? I got a phone call and it sends it comes it, through your yeah, computer. Comes That's through this my is computer. what happens during a live show. You yeah. get live interruptions. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your giving us a few minutes. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. When we have a graduate student rant show, we're gonna have you come on. I have a few but things I could say. I might have to recuse myself because I I don't want to let you feel like you. I wouldn't can't. say anything bad that you <laughs> wouldn't be able to hear. I know. That you're not gonna listen to later <laughs> I, anyway. This is true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Enjoy the rest of the conference. All right. All right. Thank you. So much. Right. Okay, so we are back still here at NextGen. We have Samantha Morris here. She's from, well, she is a postdoc. She's a transitioning postdoc to Boston Children's. Um, right? It's, there's so many different titles. Boston Children's, the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, the Harvard Medical School. What is it? It's all three? It's all of them, all three. It's all three. Um, so uh, she was here yesterday giving her talk, and she's. A, I'm saying she's a transitioning postdoc because she just accepted a job at... Washington University School. Of Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Kudos. We'll be, uh, assistant Definitely. professor. Um, we were calling it different last night. Um, so why don't you give a, like a quick, you know, quick minute or two on, on like what you presented and what you did, what your work and stuff like that, what okay. you're interested in. Okay. So I'm, I'm basically a new transplant to stem cell biology. Um, I was back at the University of Cambridge and I was more of a traditional embryologist, so working on pre-implantation mass development. Before that, I worked on Xenopus Lavis development, so I yeah, think of did. myself as a it's traditional like a developmental, developmental biologist. Yeah, so I know what real stem cells are, why they come Yeah, you from. do. Certainly in the mouse embryo, anyway. Um, then, at the end of that time, I wanted to do something that I could translate, and I decided why don't I go to the US? Because I think this is where the strength of translational medicine is. So I joined George Daly's lab and um, kind of looked at differentiation of stem cells, looked at direct conversion between mature fates, got really fascinated by this. And really we wanted to assess the field because at the moment you know, people use different protocols to generate clinically relevant cell types. But the way we can assess the kind of cells that we make is through in vitro assays, through transplantation, uh, through global gene expression. And it really doesn't tell you much about the fate of the cells that you're studying. So we developed a computational platform with Jim Collins' lab and with my great collaborator, Patrick Cahan, and also Hu Lee, to use gene regulatory networks to assess cell identity, so to act as molecular fingerprints. And uh, we found that most of the protocols are making cells that are immature, which mm-hmm. has been well known in the field before. And um, but the direct conversions were interesting to me because they seem to be partially converted. So they, the cells would still resemble fibro- fibroblasts, for example, when you were trying to convert them to hepatocytes, and they'd only get part of the way there. And we actually found that the hepatocytes generated from fibroblasts through expression of FOXA1H4-alpha actually resembled progenitors that could uh, self-renew in vitro and also functionally engraft both liver and colon. So it was a really nice platform for dissecting sulfate. Excellent. So, yeah, so that would make you an endoderm person. I'm, I've always been yeah. an endoderm yeah, person, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know many. I don't know a lot of endoderm, although we're just neural people. I feel like the neural people are always Oh, you're everywhere. Very, we are, right? 
Yeah, it must be annoying, together. huh? It must be annoying. All do these. Do you find when you go to like if you go to conferences, is it very neural heavy or no? Like, yeah, yeah. And when you look at the engineering protocols, fifty percent conversing to neural. I just because I guess maybe it's just more of an efficient uh, protocol. I mean, you can make neurons better. Is that true? No, nowadays? you know what I think I it comes down to is neurons are vain and they want to study themselves. <laughs> you think about it. <laughs> Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. About, like, yeah, yeah, your neurons are processing everything, and so they're like, but this yeah, is they're true. Just directing yeah. yeah. So tell let's let's try this. Tell everybody out there who you so you just went through the process of looking for a job, finding a job yeah. as a PI. So tell everyone about that process. I mean, there's a, it's a it's a difficult process. It's a stressful time. I mean. Did you did you master it? I mean, you gave a lot of talks. How what, how did you find I the g- process? I gave a lot of talks. It's a long process. Long. So you know, I started writing my research statement back in September, and then applied to thirty three positions. Jeez. Wow. So, so yeah. Um, all this country or outside? Like all, all the U.S. All the U.S. See, mm. I'm clearly just want to be an American. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do. Yeah, well, you we're do. happy to have you. Um, and I'm, I won't say it on, on the air, but you you had the best email address I've ever seen. I'm not going to say what it is, but the alias is fantastic. I had to take a picture of it last time I saw it. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I think it was like fate choice at something. And so the fact that your fate choice in your email address is just amazing. That's a true <laughs> developmental biologist right yeah. there. That's a true dead bio. Way. Yeah, and um, we should also talk about uh, the, the, the image that you had at the beginning of your talk, which was I believe a cell cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you know when that was? When when's the issue on that? That was the August the fourteenth issue. See, I know the of exact twenty fourteen. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Of course, you down do. Down to the day and the I would hour the exact was published online. Damn right. So she she made a uh, a fate mapping sort of. Uh, how would you describe it? It was the T line in Boston, right? Yeah, it's kind of my interpretation of cell fate specification as visualized through the Boston T system, which I've grown to. Love and hate. Love and hate. I don't know much about the. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Bart, I guess, in San Francisco, or uh, the was it the tube down in in London. In London, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's a cool little uh, map, and it, it visually, I think it really gets uh, all the concepts across. So, um, that was that was cool. How uh, how many people in George's lab? I'm just curious. I think something maybe thirty five. Thirty five. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot that's, of peeps. That's pretty big. That's yeah. Tri- I have five. And I don't know how I can handle five. <laughs> I have zero right now, or maybe one. Yeah. So la- let me ask you this question: What are you most looking forward to starting your own lab? And what are you most? What are you most? Uh, I don't want to use. I'm using the word afraid, but that's not what I mean. What are you most scared of about having your own lab? I'm looking forward to building a team, that's and a um, you know, working on these problems together. I think that will be fantastic. Oh, what am I most afraid of? Building just a team? Get, get, probably, yeah. <laughs> just getting up and running. So there's like you know, that. there's gonna be a lag time now there's, yeah. to get the research going, get the grants yeah. coming in. So uh. Well, you'll do great. And, and and thank you for the talk. It was awesome and I've I've never met you before, so it's lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And hopefully you'll come back again to the conference. Definitely, thank you. All right, thank you for coming on. Take care. Okay, so I think this will probably be our last live interview. I think uh, so. We have Evangelos Kiskinis uh, from Northwestern University. Uh, gave a real I, he, he gave a talk that had these images that blew me out, blew my socks off. Essentially, <laughs> I I was uh, really impressed. So, um, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. 
Thank you. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you just give like the elevator conversation? If you were standing in an elevator and you wanted to tell somebody uh, what what you presented here today, um, what it was all about. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I just started my own lab at Northwestern University at the neurology department. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been uh, less than a year already. Yeah, it's been a few months, four months, actually. Four months. It's pretty exciting. Brand new. Um, So, you know, in my lab, the general goal of our lab is to basically um, study human neuronal subtypes, not only in the context of disease, but in the context of their physiology. Uh, and I presented work that's a continuation of the work that I did while I was in Kevin Egan's lab around um, ALS modeling genetic types of ALS, um, particularly some uh, most recent work that we've done in collaboration with Kevin using this novel OptoPatch technology yes. to look at the electrical signal of motor neurons. This is a fascinating tool that was discovered by Adam Cohen. Mm-hmm. Uh, physics professor at Harvard University, uh, which is basically based on the combinatorial expression of a classic channel rhodopsin mm-hmm. and um, a novel channel rhodopsin which emits light when there's a change in voltage. Yeah, I like the way you described it uh, to me. You said it normally with autogenetics, you shine light and uh, voltage goes through or you know ions flow through. This is the opposite. Yeah, uh, so this does the exact... So a classic channel reduction will basically... You shine blue light on it, mm. and then it activates... It triggers an action potential. This does the exact opposite. So when there's a change in voltage, it, it emits light. Yeah. So by reading light at the far red wavelength, you can basically read off the so, voltage. So he showed this image, which if you did not know any better, you would think you were in a, up in space looking down at a lightning storm. But instead, these were neurons in a dish... Uh, they were motor neurons, or so those particular the the movie that I showed was taken from a a rat glia a rat uh, neuronal uh, preparation. Okay, but yeah, we do this with motor neurons. We do it with cortical inhibitory neurons and cortical excitatory cells that we make, mm-hmm. and we use the cortical cells to study the other clinical interest in the lab, which is modeling epileptic channelopathies. Mm-hmm. And I presented some data, some new data on. Modeling Dravet syndrome, which is um, a neurodevelopmental disorder caused by mutations in a sodium channel, SCN1-alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just started that work, but we, we're excited about some of the findings, particularly what we're seeing in that the inhibitory interneurons from these patients mm-hmm. are hypoexcitable, which is in accordance with less inhibition and more excitation and seizures in this patient. And we should also mention that he also presented some uh, some ALS data showing uh, some some changes in the mitochondria and uh, the, uh, what was it the uh, cells was it the size of the yeah so this is basically work that we published um, last year from Kevin's lab in which we looked at modern urines generated from ALS patients and then isogenic controls. And we um, discovered a range of different phenotypes, including um, morphological alterations, um, differences in the ability of mitochondria to travel up and down the axons in these cells, Mm -hmm. um, as well as excitability disturbances. Um, So we're continuing that work, and we're trying to expand it to look at other genetic subtypes in ALS. So a big question in the field of ALS is that all these different 
um, genes that have been known to cause the disease code for proteins that seemingly do very different things. So mm. a question is, what is the overlap, if any at all, and the mechanisms that lead to degeneration mm. in the modern years in a different ALS subtypes? Yeah. And that's the main focus of, of my lab, and that's what we're trying to address. So you got your ear to the streets with the ALS uh, genetic disorder part. So I, I just had to ask you, what is what is up with this C9-ORF gene? Do you know anything yeah. about it? What What is this, just a byproduct, or is it... Is it causal or fa- <laughs> what is it? Yeah, so you know, there's a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement about C9 or 72. Uh, it's definitely a causal um, gene for mm. uh, ALS, and actually, we're finding that uh, it is also a causal gene for FTD uh, from the temporal from dementia. The, okay. Um, FTD. Yeah. yeah. Okay. FTD. I thought you said FD. Yeah. Oh. Um, so what I can tell you is that I am not working on C9 or 72, actually. Uh, um, yeah, I know. I think everybody else in the world <laughs> is working on C9 or 72. So, you know, as a young PI, you have to basically be find strategic. Find your niche. Take your battles. Yeah, find your niche. <laughs> so, uh, but we heard some exciting stuff about repeat expansion um, uh, mechanisms at this meeting, So, which is going to be applicable for the C9 disease yeah. in itself. but. <clears throat> one of the cool, excuse me, one of the coolest thing uh, pictures, Yo's videos, was the field picture of the spontaneous activity, which you can do with this new technique. And for everybody, you can imagine it's just this field of neurons just um, with flashing with color as yeah. uh, indi- to indicate activity. And um, it's really, really awesome. Just and that's just spontaneous activity, right? That's not elicited. Yeah, it's you can see it both at the you can see the the neurons spontaneously firing but also when you shine blue light they fire significantly more mm. well yeah. very cool and is this technology available somewhere or yeah so the technology this is basically an invention of, that came out of Adam Cohen's group um, there was a paper published early in the year by uh, Daniel Hochbaum from Adam's group in Nature Methods which is very exciting I urge everybody to look at it so the vectors and everything is available and anybody can try it I think the bottleneck is you need a dedicated scope because mm-hmm. you actually need three um, wavelengths. You need, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very fast camera, and you need mm-hmm. the appropriate optics and mm-hmm. uh, image analysis to analyze the data. So that, that's the bottleneck. But in theory, anybody can apply it. Okay, but mm-hmm. well, they yeah. can find your name and email you if they're maybe interested or something sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can email me or they can email Adam Cohen directly. Uh, okay. Or okay. Well, we should maybe try to get Adam on the show and, and yeah, 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 yeah. technology. That. Yeah, it'd be great to to sort of highlight that that you know this is almost like optogenetics level of excitement in yeah. terms of uh, new and techniques. Yeah, and it spans many things besides just the stem cell field. So we like to have some broad-reaching uh, technologies. Yeah, exactly. It. It's applicable, uh, you know, in any system. So okay. Adam has created a, a fish. Uh, yeah, you know, he's, I can't he's wait put to it in see bacteria. This, yeah. it's, it's exciting stuff. That's I cool. can't wait to see this fish uh, That's cool. sparking, sparking up. And you said it also works not just in the brain, but with, uh, is it? Is it works in any cell that has electrical activity. So you know, Adam Adam's group uses it to look at cardiomyocytes, electrical activity in cardiomyocytes, for mm. example, to do mm. cardiotox studies and so on. Nice, nice. Well, thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. Thanks for coming out here, flying yeah, out. Yeah, thank you. Well, I've got to say, you know, it's been a great couple of days. I really enjoyed it. It's a great opportunity to meet, interact with young people, young stem cell scientists. And I, I'm going to say this on the, uh, next year I'm going to be here again. You're damn right you are. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to try and bring my lab to this good, meeting because it's good. a really good opportunity. It's a good opportunity, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it, man. Always good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
All right, so there it is, Saratoga, another one for the books. Yeah, man, so cool. Uh, so cool. I really love that herpes talk. That was really awesome. And uh, yeah, the Evangelos also had a great talk. But, it, you know, I, it, Greg Smith is just a great guy to talk about that stuff with because there's so many questions with that virus. And it's so common that it's like, how can you not ask a question about that 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 material? So um, I'm glad I, I we know. worked that out. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know, like herpes or like cold sores is such like a captivating t- i feel like everybody wants to talk about it but not really at the yeah same time. yeah exactly it's like it's 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 so it, pervasive you see it in like you know on friends of yours and and people you yeah. know and you're just if you like, go into a room full of people and you say cold sore people are turning around yeah i mean people you'll get people's attention for sure yeah, so yeah. anyway it's it's a cool insight into the actual virus and yeah. what it can do and where it lives and everything like and that ho- all right so let's hopefully we could get adam cohen on uh for that technology I with know, the man. uh the opto patch that's pretty cool stuff so um i'm i'm that was some of the more mind-blowing stuff i saw at the conference so uh great stuff all right so, so. we should ran it up yeah, yeah, I'm ready to rant this one. So I ran a few by Chris before we started recording, and we narrowed it down to uh, salt and pepper shakers that don't... This actually started yesterday when I was having a meal, and I wanted some salt, and the salt shaker wouldn't release any salt. And I was like, this is stupid. Why Why am I doing this? And it was just one little tiny hole, and I guess it got clogged or it's humid out. I don't know what happened, and I was just really frustrated but what chris and i totally related to is when you go to the pizza parlor and there's that red crushed pepper and you're trying to get that red crushed pepper out and the holes just don't you'll get like one one kernel at a per shake and you're sitting there like yeah the red pepper one at the pizza place is the worst because the the flakes are are bigger than the holes in the shaker yeah who designed this i have no idea who who designed it i don't know why we're still using it i know it's 2015 who who so you know what i I always open it up i will open up the top oh really yeah and i'll i'll actually uh kind of shake because it's impossible i'll never get that could be overkill anything out that could be overkill. You could just like flood your pizza by too much, or do you pinch it from there? Well, I don't. I would pinch, but I don't want to stick my fingers in there. I know I that's feel like just kind of dirty. Yeah, yeah, but I don't understand like what's going on with that. Like why they haven't changed that at all? And there's there's got to be a better way. You know what? You know what's funny? Because like I phys- I remember in my head the pizza restaurants that have good red crushed peppers shakers. There's one that's in Harlem that's like completely ghetto. They take like that big McCormick, you know, value size pack and they just basically crush big holes into the t- cap of it. And that one for some reason is one of the more efficient red pepper, you know, shakers that I, and I remember them because it's like, wow, look at this. They solved the the, the problem. <laughs> So yeah, and and like so, there's that. Then there's the salt, like you said. There's the salt ones that just get all caked up and don't come out. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. And then like you know the pepper. I feel like peppers never really have a problem with pepper. The black pepper ones typically come out. Do you know what I've been finding at pizza places? They're getting real stingy with the Parmesan cheese. They don't they don't actually put it out anymore. You have to ask for it. Yeah, what's it's up probably with that? More expensive or something like that. So they don't want you like 
going crazy with the Parmesan. So if it's not there, or, and even that doesn't really come out of the hole sometimes. Yeah, that makes sense, actually, because I heard the most expensive part of uh, you know making pizza is the cheese. It's not the tomato or the bread. It's the cheese. So I, won't I mean, be how much does it cost to make a, like, a, a pie? Probably a few yeah, bucks. It's probably, yeah, I mean... That's their business model. In New York, it's not not unheard of. I mean, a basic slice of cheese will be now like two fifty. What's a pie go for in New York? If you were going to get a large pizza, how much is that? Well, it depends on where you go. I mean, but like, I mean, like an average, like twelve bucks at least. At least, at I'm least, thinking right? like fifteen at least. Yeah, Jeez, yeah, yeah, man. yeah. So, but anyway, uh, everybody can relate to pizza. It's our everybody favorite, can yeah. relate to out. That red pepper flake container and not and getting like a flake that comes out. <laughs> I, I really hate that. So uh, that's a rant. We're going to stick with it. And uh, another uh, conference down for the books. I look forward to next year, Chris. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah. Another good one. Thanks Congratulations. For, uh, thanks for being there, Congratulations. Was we'll it was a good one. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Tomashima out there for helping out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely props to Mark. He's a excellent co-organizer. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. We had a good night out. I don't have no stories to embarrass Mark with this year. So uh, sorry, Mark. You're safe this year. The peacemaker has made his peace. All right. All right, man. We'll see you at 45. Take care. All right. See you.